All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Questlove Supreme. Welcome to our, our our nominated, our NAACP nominated Team Supreme. Laia, hello, how are you? I'm, I'm feeling good and Image Award nominated, sir. I have made it. Yes, that's fine. And uh, Sugar Steve, uh, how, how are you uh, this evening? I'm good. My image has been nominated as well by the NAACP. Congratulations so, on your NAACP you. image. Yeah, <laughs> that's how I'm feeling. I'm feeling good. And uh, you know, uh, the, the 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 keeper of Rocco and Elmo. How you doing, uh, unpaid bill? I can't say that I ever thought in all the awards that I'd ever be nominated for an NAACP award. So feels good. Let's just put it like that. <laughs> there you go. Cheers, Montego. How, how's it going? I'm good, brother. I'm good, man. Glad to be nominated. And uh, yeah, I never thought this would happen this way. I, never I know. Thought you thought it would be over in three years, right? Straight shit. Three. You he better left to go get cigarettes after three. He came back after two. And now he's back. And now it's okay. We're back in here, son. He went to get cigarettes for a long time. Okay. So I know for the longest, you know, I've been talking to our listeners at QLS, especially in the last year, about you know, the the direction of transformation my life is going and how it's important to often get out of your comfort zone, you know, stretching out to different territories. So I will be the first to be very transparent with our longtime listeners of QLS that this episode should be notable for unlike previous Quest of Supreme episodes, this will probably be the first time that and it's not like I have a PhD in every guest that ever comes on the show, but this will probably mark the first time that I don't know the entire canon and history of a particular guest of the show, like <laughs> the back of my hand. I'm not saying that I'm not familiar with our, our guest today. So that said, I would actually like to say and inject that we have two special guests today. So joining uh, the Team Supreme is uh, my brother in soul or soul Quarian. James Aloysius Poiser, uh, producer, songwriter, 
fellow Randy Watsoner extraordinaire mm-hmm. and gospel aficionado. And, and um, meme and world famous meme on Twitter. Yeah, oh, oh <laughs> that's I'm, true. I'm a guy. Yeah, James is definitely like a, a, a meme. I'm not even a meme. Like, that's a life goal of mine. Do, do memes get nominated for NAACP awards? They no, give you it five years. Give you it five won years. Grammys, five but back up, sir. Back up. You won Grammys. <laughs> yes, you, you have Grammys. And, you know, but I'm but certain just that as in good. the Meme Hall of Fame, in the Meme Hall of Fame, you will make it. That said, I, I, I brought Brother James here to help me pick up the pieces on things that I otherwise wouldn't know. Because for me, I don't want to leave any stone unturned. Our, our guest today, I will say, is one of the most legendary and influential musicians that I know in Black music. That's not hyperbolic or anything. I say this literally because I've not met a musician post five that has not made our guests their North Star as far as their musicianship is concerned. We'll get with that in the show today, but without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Questlove Supreme, the legendary Brother Fred Hammond. Yes. Appreciate it, appreciate it, and congratulations everybody for the work you're doing and your nomination. This is is the bomb. Thank you very much. We thank you for that. You know, what's weird, I didn't even know that you were active on social media. And you had left a a comment in one of my things. And I was like, yo, Fred Hammond knows who I am. Like, I I had zero clue that you even knew that I was alive or anything. So um, Mm -hmm. this this conversation is long, long overdue, because as as I said at the top, back when I was really honing my skills as a musician, um, there was like one of three routes you can go. Now, we all know that I, I chose the hip hop route. Um, most musicians in 83, 84, 85, they chose the purple route. And then there's a sect of black musicianship in which you might have a household that might not allow secular music in the household. And that said, I will say that you were probably their main choice. And when I say you, I'm talking about you and your very influential group, Commission. Um, So I I thank you. I've been dying to have this conversation with you because I need the edumacation. So where where are you right now as we speak? I'm at uh, my studio here in Dallas. I have a warehouse and a studio here that I do everything out of, me and my family, my brothers. And um, I was actually just finishing up a vocal that I'm working on for the new edition tour. Yes. Just to kind of give them some stuff to go through some transitions, mm. you know, to give them some suggestions and stuff. So I was just finishing up uh, that, you know, and then we'll send it out to them and see, you know, to give them some ideas of what can happen. My brother Ray is the uh, production manager for the tours. So when you see BBD, a new edition, he's front of house and the guy that runs the, uh, you know, gets everything together production wise. So. so you're telling us that you're sort of, quasi md or co-md of this reunion tour that's about no, to happen no it's just uh right now we're just seeing some stuff and I, I wanted to show them like uh a lot of the transitions that they want to do from song to song to song that they could do some vocal right here that's simple that's what they do because it's not normal for them to do that and so i just i went in there and just did some old commission new edition type stuff mm, simple yes just to get them to the next song 
you know, so to give them another, just to give them an idea of what can happen. So, you know, it's up to them, you know. That sounds like yeah, quasi MD. Okay. Quasi <laughs> MD. Well, it's it's funny you say that because I think maybe like a month ago, I was listening to Heartbreak and I was just talking to Jimmy Jam about the intro song of that album, which is called uh, That's the Way We're Living, which as far as its execution is concerned, I, I feel like that definitely falls from the tree of what Commission was about. You know, when a lot of these cats that have what we call gospel chops, they're basically saying that, you know, they're sons of commission. So I always wanted to know how you felt about your influence as far as the black musicianship we have now with gospel chops. Like, you know, do you watch acts often in R&B say like, well, that's our lick and that's our lick and that's our like. Well, you know, the thing about it is back then, a lot of people don't know this, but I was close with a lot of those guys back then. You know, you know, it was funny because, you know, Devante, his father is a pastor. And one day we did a concert at their church and Devante said, yo, man, you know, he came up iced out. He was a young fella. He said, <laughs> hey, man, I just want to tell you, you guys have been influenced to us. And I just got signed to MCA. And the name of my group is called Jodeci. I said, really? He said, you know, KC. And I knew KC from Lil Cedric. I used to Lil play Cedric, yeah. Friday. So Lil Cedric and the Haley Singers, we would do concerts together and pass on the road and do interviews and whatnot. So I was, I kept up with all of those guys. And, you know, a lot of the, the cats, Chucky Booker and DOA and, Mm, they would Alley, bring yeah. me backstage. They would bring me backstage, and whether they was doing the Budweiser, the Superfest, and I'm a student. You know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of church people, they don't go places and learn because they can't control themselves when they get inside or behind the curtain. You know, but I would it. go. You know, I would go to Al Heyman Budweiser Superfest, and I would meet the guys backstage, and I would watch. I'd be a student of production of how they were playing, and I would take it back to commission. You know. Uh, commission is a amalgam of the Clark sisters, number one, hmm. the vocal of the Clark sisters. Then the rest is the time, Earth, Wind and Fire, um, <laughs> Genesis, you know, uh, Chicago. We did a, just a different thing. And we noticed that a lot of the guys that were coming around at that time were coming up to us and they were starting to get, they get put on like boys and men. And we just kept in touch and we were just cool and friendly. Uh, little Joe and um, buddy from the rude boys. Yeah. Man, we were always doing something. We were always together at some point doing something, <laughs> letting them hear music. They letting us hear ours and hear theirs. And, you know, so we, we kept connected with our R and B family, you know, did he just say Genesis? Yes. Yep. Bill uh, Collins. That's what's up. But if you if you really look at it, yo, I mean, there's really not that much difference between prog rock and gospel, gospel. chops. Wow, crazy drum feels and the, yeah, dude, we just saw just like <laughs> we just literally. Um, I forget uh, the brother's name, but I remember when James. I think you remember this. You remember this? Do you remember when um, uh, who's who's the group that who morphed? They were formerly known as At the Drive-In, and then when one of their members oh, died... Oh, Mars Volta? They, Mars right. Volta. Yeah. So do you remember when Mars Volta auditioned a drummer at our studio? Like, behind, literally next to your studio, he was a gospel chops drummer. Thomas Pridgen? I think it... 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it was a it was a match made. At first, I was like, mm, that's weird that they got a gospel child, drummer to do it. But because of the intricacies of what Mars Volta is, it was like a marriage made in heaven. And that's when I realized that gospel chops and prog rock are almost neck and neck with each other. I mean, of course, gospel chop has more soul to it, but every every yeah. pop group now has a gospel drummer. I just Ariana Grande and all those guys, they all have it's all like big fills from three and four into one. Every every bar. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally all black music. <laughs> I think it's not, it's not think all black music. It's like everything's like at the end of a four bar phrase is do what the, the notable thing about my entry in music is that I'm the opposite of that. But literally, which is funny. Yeah, which I'm, I'm saying that basically I feel as though commissioned really is probably the most influential black group in at least the last 40 years of music second to to print you know as, as far as the as far as the ripple effect of nah absolutely your contribution i mean um, if you look but, at a song but, like i'm learning i mean which is one of my favorite songs for y'all i mean that wouldn't sound out of place on a jodeci album or you know what i'm saying like it was yeah. the thing i always liked about y'all's y'all stuff was that it was i could tell when you say you know you were a student and you would go and meet the other groups and stuff the songs always sounded current you know what i'm saying a lot of yeah. times gospel because for those very reasons you said you know gospel stuff would always be behind like if it came out in 92 it would sound like something from like 88 87 <laughs> you know right. what i'm saying <laughs> but 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 commission records y'all was always like right on time and it was never dated i always appreciated that man that right there was um it was just our our dna it was like we listened to everybody i give you a story one of the guys wrote a song called It's So Good to Know the Savior, and the, he was a tempo guy. So it was like a church tempo. It's so good to know the Savior. And the record company didn't pick it. It was, it had all of the fizzle and the buzz and everything. And the guy, he came to me and said, hey man, listen, I think we need to change the drummer out, and which is our drummer. I was like, no, man, we, it's not that. I said, basically it's, man, it's, it's kind of dated. And I said, Tomorrow, we just need to cast it over that month. And they didn't know because they hadn't heard they hadn't heard Levert. Uh -huh. I was cool with with Gerald. And so when Casanova came out, they hadn't heard it yet. So I said, let's just get in the studio and let me flip it a little bit. And I had an R8 drum machine and some stuff. And I just boom, boom, cockaboom, boom, cockaboom, boom, boom, cockaboom. And then it changed into you can see it vamp into that. And then the song had life. Well, that was because we stayed current and we paid attention to the trends and our counterparts. You know, we paid, paid attention to everybody from the old school, whether it's Luther, uh, uh, Al Green, you know, Earthwind, all the way up to the vert, to uh, Babyface, to the deal. You know, mm. like we were talking, which, which song we like? We like Sweet November or do we like this? Because our <laughs> vocals were, were off of the whispers and the dramatics. Mm -hmm. Those were our male vocal counterparts that we, we love doo-wop. So if you hear a lot of our, our harmonies, we sing like Ron Banks and Scotty and Walter. You'll hear a lot of that in our, but then we add what we are. But it's because we paid attention to musicology. We just paid attention to everything, you know. So it was funny, too. Uh, you said something about Jimmy. 
Jimmy Terry is like my hero. Jimmy Terry, Teddy, Tim, uh, Babyface in L.A. So one time we were going to uh, do this thing in Minnesota called um, uh, it's a Methodist church and they were soul liberation outreach. And they said, where you want to go tomorrow? I said, can we go see t- flight time? Cause we were just, you know, we didn't have no studio. So I said, can we go see flight time? We want to see some black guys who were owning something. And I walked into flight time and it, I was just blown away. And I, that's when I was just influenced heavily by you know, these two guys, and they were just finishing the controls, starting on, we got to start on this new record called Rhythm Nation, they're recording now, and um, we just had those moments, then they, they said, well, where you want to go next, now we, we church boys, now remember this, this is, this is, but we church boys, so we don't do clubs and stuff like that, so somebody said, you want to go see Prince Studio, and we was like, oh, I don't know, so people like, oh, <laughs> I think people was like, I think something going to jump on us. But I said, yeah, man, I want to go. I want to see it. So we went over there, man, and, and the whole ride over there, because at that point, Prince wasn't in his last space. He was in that, that I want to, I'm, I'm going to really mess you up with whatever I'm talking about. And we walked up to the place and people was praying, Jesus help us, Lord. You know, we're walking into the spot <laughs> and we thinking, man, you, you better pray. You better put some anointed oil on you, whatever you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and when we, when we walked in, it was business as usual. People just walking around doing business. Mm-hmm. It wasn't nothing crazy. Mm-hmm. And I said, man, this is, whole thing is a persona. You thought and it was going to be walked- Sodom and Gomorrah. I thought it he was, thought he was going to Fela's house. <laughs> and the rest of the guys, some of the guys said, man, I'm going to just stay in the, I'm going to stay in the van. <laughs> what? I, said, I said, I'm going in. I want to see what's what. I mean, it, how far do you get this? How do you get this close? Right. And not see this guy had a complex. I mean, at that time to think about Paisley, it was, it was, it was like Cowboy Stadium at that time. To, uh, to, I said, I got to go see it. But when I walked through, they took us to his personal room and they just, I, my mind was blown because it was just business. And at the end of the day, I said, man, this is just a persona. And then I learned how to be an owner. So now, I mean, I got 17,000 square feet. Well, it came from Jimmy and Terry. It came from Jimmy, Terry, Prince, and Michael Powell, who lived in Detroit, who yeah, uh, produced Anita Baker. Produced uh, Anita Baker. Yeah. That was my close friend. Yeah. So oh, wow. I had to learn. Uh, and that's, you know, I looked at my big brothers to do that for me, you know. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Schmurter to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. 
In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, I, I want to start at the beginning of, of your life. Um, I'm assuming that you were born in Detroit, Michigan. Is that no, correct? No, I was born in San Antonio. Oh, born, all right. Yeah. See, the one time I don't ask the question, I get burnt. Sorry. <laughs> Can you tell me what your first musical memory was? My first musical memory, honestly, was, first of all, you know, I, I, I say this because uh, a lot of people have uh, these misconceptions about gospel artists and preachers that everybody thinks that they're perfect. I don't. I was I was born different. You know, I was um, my mother and father were married to other people and uh, he was a pastor and my mother was a musician and um, the church really dogged my, my mom and protected him. What? And so they kind of put her out. And so it was basically me and her. And before I was born, you know, we went through this whole thing about she was she went and had an abortion and it didn't work. You know, so it's a lot of stuff wow. that goes on with me being here. You're destined. You know, so, um, yeah. That's a blessing. Yeah. And so she was my biggest musical influence. So I followed her everywhere to because she taught choirs. She was very amazing at teaching choirs and playing the piano for churches. And I never forget, I'll go back to, uh, she came home with this little 45 and I had a closing play. And she said, you know, I bought these boys, you know, and it was just a picture of these five boys, it was the Jacksons. And she said, you know, listen to this. I hadn't even heard them on the radio. And I put it on my closing play and I Want You Back came on. And I just saw Michael as my age because they were saying he was younger than, they said he was my age. I was probably five, six and I was just, um, I was enamored with this group. And so I was singing and I found myself singing Jermaine's part at six, seven years old. And my mother said, you know, if you open your mouth, you can sing better. You can sing like that little boy right there. And I was very shy and I didn't want her to hear me because I thought she would make me sing in front of people. So I made sure she didn't ever hear me again. So I took my clothes and play in the closet because you ran it on batteries and I sang in the closet because I didn't want her to hear me sing. I was afraid she was going to put me up there. 
in right. front of the church. And so that's my earliest knowledge right there. So were you kind of born into skepticism of the church? Like since you're because of your situation, I, I, you know, the beautiful thing is God kept me from that, from the knowledge of people not okay. thinking I was worth it, mm-hmm. you know, but when I look back at it, a lot of people just thought I was just worthless because you, you can't do nothing with God because you're born out of wedlock. You, who are you? You know, your mother, your mother is, is an adulterer. So they just kind of threw us away. But the reality is that's why I'm probably effective today. Not because I sing good, not because I play any instruments or not because I produce anything or sing on anybody's record. It's because I understand what broken people go through. And so my whole job is to tell people, hey, man, I've been broken. I understand brokenness. You, you, why don't you come with me? I believe this. And, you know, so there's no errors. It's just. There's a forgiveness element in there, too, though, that you got. That you, absolutely. that's what it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. when people, like Quest, you said, you understand my pain when it comes to just you and your mom. You understand that, you know, and maybe others do, too. But, you know, my path, man, my path is just it's been ordained to go through a rugged, rugged, beat up path to get to this point to tell other people, I Mm. understand where you are. I get it. I get it. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I mean, that's mine wasn't as drastic as like being shunned or whatnot, but definitely my parents were sort of in the same situation where they we're part of other unions and, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of how, you know, I came, I came to the world. So for a lot of our listeners, I don't know if they're fully aware, you know, I, I would explain to people often that, you know, we'll look at somebody like, you know, Ray Charles now as a national treasure, but, you know, I would tell like anybody that I'm teaching about Ray Charles is the fact that, you know, Ray Charles was was probably almost the NWA of his day. Like the idea of <laughs> the idea of him singing mm-hmm. gospel music with secular lyrics was highly controversial with the mm-hmm. black church. And fast forwarding to where your entry into gospel music is, where you can put some funk inside or put some swing inside of your music, and it really not rub people the wrong way. Can you explain just the, what brought you to Detroit? How did you make the transition from San, San Antonio to Detroit? Well, due to the circumstance and situation, <laughs> they sent us up to Detroit. We were sent. Oh, <laughs> you exiled to Detroit. Dang. Exile. We, 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 we got a, a nice bus ticket up to a, <laughs> a friendly place called Detroit and a beautiful family called the Hoke the hoax family, they took us in and they gave us their attic and um, we became a part of their family while my mother go, went through her healing process, you know, um, of which when she passed at 74, she was still trying to validate herself as, you know, forgiven, you know, and she was a, she's a great praise warrior, great, she, you know, she, she made a lot of strides, and, but it just, she couldn't get over some things. And uh, uh, so we ended up in Detroit, which was a blessing. How big is your family at this point, as far as your siblings? And at that time, it was me and my mom. At this point, it's me. I got two brothers, Ray and Dave, and they have families. Um, I have a family. I have kids and uh, whatnot. And 
I have two sisters that live in Atlanta from my, my mother's other union, you know. Okay. Um, gotcha. And then then I have a brother and four other sisters from the other union. So I'm right there in the middle. Okay. Uh, I'm the absolute. When you count down, I'm the middle child of all of that. You know, so that's we we're, we're and now we're all kind of clued together. My brother from my father's side, he comes and he drives our tour bus from time to time, and, and my sisters are so we're all kind of together, and uh, okay. you know that's that's the thing. So okay, I, I know you were born in uh, 1960, I believe. Yep. Um, so can you describe to me what it is to grow up in Detroit, Michigan? In the early 70s, I know about, you know, I've heard people tell me about growing up in Detroit in the early 60s. And I know, of course, people who grew up in Detroit between like the mid 80s and the and the early 90s. But I really don't know people that have had a period in Detroit in the early 70s, like around that period where like United Sounds there, where, you know, Motown's leaving. Could you just describe to me basically what? your life was as a teenager in Detroit, Michigan in the seventies? You know, it was uh, really just about, about school and surviving in the hood, you know, just, you know, one of my good friends in the seventies, I, uh, I went to, well, my mom moved to California to Inglewood when I was in the fourth grade, the first part of the fourth grade and she didn't like it. And we came back to Detroit around December but I hadn't been in school. So that whole fourth grade year, I had to try to catch up. So this is like the seventies, you know, this is, and whatnot. The next mm -hmm. year I had to go to a parochial school, a seven day Adventist where I was good friends. My best friend was Greg Mathis, judge Greg Mathis. So he and I were in the fifth grade <laughs> wow. together. What? Wow. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. He and I were in the fifth grade together and everything you ever hear that he ever said, 100. Cause I lived in the hood. And he lived in the projects. He lived in the Herman Gardens, and uh, he had a bunch of brothers. And uh, but he was smart as a whip in the in the fifth grade, and I was struggling. But he and I were just really good friends. So growing up there, we was just, you know, the seventies are almost a blur because I wasn't musical yet. I was thinking more sports and whatnot, and uh, I, I hadn't done any uh, real music until I got to about sixteen about 15 or 16 years old. And I transitioned from drums in my church to bass guitar. Okay. Wait a minute. You're trying to tell me that I'm thinking like you came out the wound playing bass, but <laughs> no. this didn't happen until you were a teenager. Yeah. Right around 14, 13 years old. I started transitioning because my mother, I went to a church called greater grace temple and the line to play drums was around the corner. And, and the pastor's <laughs> son, he had it locked. Chucky Ellis, Charles Ellis, he's Bishop Ellis now, but he was an amazing drummer. And uh, I had my sticks. I would go every Sunday and I would try to play and, you know, just never got a chance. So my mother said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't like to see you, you know, not getting a ch chance. Is there any other instrument? There was a bass guitar laying over in the corner and nobody would come and play it because the guy was working. And I said, well, I, I like to play ba bass. Maybe I could try that. And that's when I moved to bass guitar. And I never look back. The reason why it's also important for me to know about this specific period in the 70s is because 
I know that once black families migrate to the Midwest, especially in town, you know, like in Ohio, Detroit, Indiana, Illinois, you know, a lot of them are escaping the South, the racism of the South, the Jim Crow South. They're getting these factory jobs. These factory jobs are paying well and they're buying these houses and the houses have garages. And of course, instruments, you know, this is basically how like the first wave of, of the funk generation starts. And I know that around maybe around the Nixon administration, 70, 71, 72, you know, budgets started to get cut. Music education started to wane and whatnot. And the idea of the garage band, you know, kind of wilted out. So, I mean, by that time period, even though you were late in developing your musicianship, were there musicians around like next door and all those things or... Were factories closing by then, and then like that dream just died. You know, music was still big, uh, even though a lot of the porch bands and the garage bands from the '60s weren't very popular. But music was still a thing, you know. So I, I hooked up with a guy uh, at my 15. His name was Jeff Stanton, and he was like my best friend. And this guy could play every instrument. At that point, he could play bass, he could play guitar, he could play drums, and he was fluent at it at 15 years old. So he would take, every day we would come home to his house after school or in the summertime, and we would just shed, and he would start to show me people. He was the person, he said, man, I got this record you really need to hear. Check it out. This dude right here plays all the instruments. His name is Prince, and it was the For You (laughs) album. And so we're listening in the basement, and he's like, man, listen to that, listen to that. You got to get on your theory, Fred. And he's, he's, he's teaching me theory. And he's like, what's that? And I'd have to kind of come back and name it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so every day we would shed and we would go places like the Detroit, the Detroit Music Union and bands would play, come in and audition. So we it was still alive. Uh, and then we would play in the garage. We played Mr. Magic for like four hours, you know, in the garage. <laughs> <laughs> James. <laughs> <laughs> then we graduated. Then we graduated to Herbie and got, you know, Chameleon. I mean, you know, so once I learned that, them two songs, and we have a little crowd out there, and we just play it, and then there it was. I was so proud when I learned the bass line to That's the Way of the World, and I learned that that had doom. <laughs> oh, doom, 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 doom. when i learned that concept that that man it blew me away so we were still it was still a powerful place to learn music it hadn't died that whole 70s it hadn't died you know well living in detroit was was any of the p-funk folklore like was that an influence on you at all like seeing any of those guys around united sounds or any of those things or was that sort of like after you know they migrated and went to california like was any of that part of your dna at all you know they had a on eight mile there was a club called axles okay belita woods uh lamont johnson brainstorm they would Uh all play there brainstorm yeah belita woods yeah. yeah so they would all play there Amp Fittler would show up and they say, yo, man, that's ah. Amp Fittler from, uh, he played with George Clinton, uh, David Chong, which I mean, and they, all these people, and we would 
try to go in there and sit in there and sneak in because we was kind of underage, but we'd sneak in and we'd listen to them. And these cats, the funk was heavy. It was still, Brainstorm was just starting to get started. Man, it, it, it was real, real strong. So Amp Fittler, uh, we never got a chance to see George, but we played with a lot of the guys that played on his record, like Butch Small. Uh, I believe his name is Butch Small. Oh, Butch Small. Yeah. He was okay. real big. He used to run a studio called RMJ. And so he was the Lynn Drum King. So <laughs> he came and did some Lynn Drum on the first commission record, you know, but he was just somebody we looked up to, you know, Warren Woods, the engineer, you know, man, it was just, it was still rich, man. It hadn't died at all. It, I mean, it was still really rich in the seventies, especially going into the eighties. So as a musician, who would you say is is your North Star as far as like, that's the musician I want to emulate? Because it's weird to me, like most bass players I know, especially having lived in the 70s, every every sentence starts with at least with Larry Graham's Thank You For Letting Me Be Myself or Stanley Clark. So the fact that you started in 78 with Prince tells me that you're sort of a, a later generation. So who... As, as far as like your setting and and as far as like who you wanted to emulate, who who is the musician that is your North Star? Well, number one, okay, well, let's break it up into two bass players, okay? Not because my total North Star is Stevie, period, hands down, right? But as far as bass players are going, okay, so my mm-hmm. my first bass player influence, and I didn't really know it, but I would pick his sound out when I heard I Want You Back. And that's James Jameson. James Jameson. Yeah. I would okay. hear his bass lines. And I, I just always locked him. Now, as a bass player, uh, definitely it was Stanley and Jocko. And then it was Abe Laborio. It was Alfonso Johnson, who played mm. this, you know, fretless uh, situation. I, I, I paid attention to Anthony Jackson. These are yeah. my these are my go-tos. And then of course Marcus was younger, so he came on the scene a little bit later. Marcus but Miller. those guys were my Jameson, Clark, uh, Anthony Jackson, Jocko, Alfonso Johnson, Gino Benelli's bass player. I don't know who it was, but he we would listen to him. So anybody that was really killing back then, we would grab their record, their music, and we would just would share to it. So those are my North Stars right there. So were you more team uh, thumb plucking or were you more team index middle finger for big, I was, uh, bass I was playing? A, I'm a pocket guy. I never had the, all of these. I mm-hmm. just laid in that pocket. So I was definitely a thumper. I was definitely team thumb. I get it. Okay. I love cool. it. At what point are you forming uh, or at least bonding with uh, Marcus Montreal, like, the other members of commission like how are you guys how do you guys meet and is that was that your first actual band or did you have other bands before well mitchell jones and i we graduated we went to school together at mumford high and we were together nonstop all three years so he and i started commission you know at the end of the day he and i started commission I went off to play for the Winans. I was the bass player for them from 19 until I was like 23 years old. And that's when I started. That's when I started commission. Uh, But it was me and Mitchell, Keith Staten, Carl Reed, 
Michael Brooks and Michael Williams, the drummer. And right around them, right around. Are you talking live or studio? Both. With the Winans, I'm sorry. Oh, with the Winans, I was just, I was, man, they wouldn't even let me near the studio. <laughs> they wouldn't, you couldn't even, you couldn't even see nobody famous. What, here's, a, here's a joke. Andre Crouch came to their house and Ronald told me, he said, man, if you don't, if you, if you be good, I'll let you come over and see Andre. So we was like, oh man, we can see him. <laughs> and so they, this is no joke. They had us come over. He opened the door and we had to look through the screen at Andre sitting in the chair over there. He said, just look over there. That's him right there. Wow. Look over there. And we was like, wow, that is him. Wow, this we never asked could we come in and oh. we never went in. They, Wait, they said, we all ran, we all ran bunches. Go like, why go home? Nah, that's how they protected their relationships. Like, uh, you know, it, I would imagine. Like, go home. Mm-hmm. Go on. So I never got a chance to play on any album, you know, with them or, or, or anything. We weren't, you know, we weren't good enough, but we were good enough to do the road. And you know what? We wasn't offended. We really weren't offended. When we heard their records, we knew it was something different between Abe Laborio, Bill Maxwell, Hadley Hawkinsmith. You know, we knew it was something different. So we weren't tripping. You know, we just appreciated the, the opportunity to just be in the number. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now, let me ask you this. Were you around the, the and I'm going to nerd boy out on, my, on the church vibe. Yeah, yes. nerd out. Let's do it. it. <laughs> That's why you're here. <laughs> Were you back then on the church vibe with, with Thomas Whitfield and Rudolph Stansfield and all them guys? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Talk more James. See that stuff I wouldn't know to ask. Like more listen, James. More James. Thomas Whitfield gave me my first chance to play in the studio. And wow. my bass, my bass wasn't up to par. It wouldn't stay in tune. And I was too young. The uh. first record was Vanessa Bell Armstrong Peace Be Still record. 
Yes, Vanessa Bell. And there's a song called uh, I Don't Want My Living to Be in Vain. Uh-huh. And Any Way You Bless Me. And I ended up you- playing those two. Okay. The my, my, my boy that honestly he called in because my bass didn't work was Lenar Brantley Kern. Okay. Kern, Kern. everybody knows. Yeah. That's everybody my knows dog. Kern. Okay. <laughs> so, but Kern was the king around there. And uh, he was another guy that kind of schooled me. But that was my first take on going in the studio. So then, when we did our demo as commission, we asked, we saved up some money and we asked Thomas Whitfield to produce us. So uh, when you hear the bed track, when you hear the rhythm track, like if you listen to these four songs, Giving My Problem to You, um, I Can See Jesus. Yeah. Um, if you listen to um, uh, If We Ever Needed the Lord Before, those three songs, the rhythm track of that was produced by Thomas Whitfield. Whoa. And I was amazed by Thomas because, you know, Thomas had narcolepsy. So Thomas would be oh, wow. there. He would be straight up like this. <laughs> and he'd say, hey, get that B flat out of there. And everybody stopped. <laughs> and somebody played. And they solo it. And sure enough, guitar player played a B flat that was kind of hidden up under there. And he said, I don't play that. No, that's a C. Come on. Go back to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Thomas was my hero. Thomas was really my hero. And um, I would sit in the corner of RMJ Studio, and I went out. I remember washing a garbage can out. It was like this little gray high school garbage can we have in high school. I went and washed it out. I turned it upside down and stuck it between the tape machine. MCI tape machine and an effects rack. And I sat in this little cubby hole and I didn't ask, I didn't say a word. I said, don't let him kick me out. Don't let him kick me out. And I honestly just sat there and I listened and I prayed and I said, Lord, show me how he thinks. And I probably was 18 years old at that time. I said, please show me how he thinks because he was a, he was a genius. When he sat down and played, like he sit on the piano and played, Man, it was it was magical, magical. just the way he did it. Yeah. And so, you know, Thomas Whitfield, uh, man, Rudolph Stanfield. Oh man, yes. Yeah. Rudolph was a, and I'm not sure if you remember this guy because he was right with Thomas, and that's Earl J. Wright. You know, yes. He was <laughs> he was he was a genius. So all these cats ran together, and I just stood in the background. So yeah, brother Hammond, you mentioned about <laughs> you not <laughs> having the right base. What one, what was your first base you used and what is your acts of what is sort of your acts of of your 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 favorite your weapon? Yeah. 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 Okay, so true story. Um uh my mother, we went to Kmart, and when we were talking about doing to a base, we went to Kmart and there was a base on sale for $35, and the headstock was cracked, literally cracked. Mm. And they said $35. And the guy said, if you buy it now, I'll give it to you for $25. Now, it couldn't stay in tune. It was impossible because between the A and the G, you know, there was, uh, it was cracked. Right. So I'm sitting there and I'm going, I think we can fix this. So I think we can take this to wood shop and put it on a vice and put some glue there. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to make this thing work. So we took it up to Wonderland Music and said, you know, can y'all fix this? And the guy said, no, nah, you can't fix that. You need to take that back and buy this one. We'll give it to you for the same price if you come back and buy it. We took it back to Kmart, argued with him because it was no return, but they gave us our money back. My mother took the 25 back, 
to Wonderland, and uh, it uh, we bought this Norma for that same amount. And so I never forget. My mother said, "If you if you put this under your bed and you don't use it, I'm gonna sell it. Now you got to promise me." And so I promised her, and I played, and I went to church, and we had a, had a storefront church, and I played. I had a little bitty amp, and I played. And I would play so high because you couldn't hear me. So I had to play it like a lead because church be going. And I'm playing. That's the only thing you could hear out that little amp. And so my mother got really, I I got discouraged and I put it up. So for four months, my mother let it sit up under the bed. And then one day she was going, we were going to choir rehearsal. And she said, I'm disappointed in you. I'm disappointed in you. You promised me. I'm going to sell that. I'm going to sell it. And she wouldn't even look at me. She just drive me. She said, I'm very disappointed in you. And my mother's relationship wasn't no talking. It was just she talked and I just listened. And I felt horrible. And she said, why did you disappoint me like that? You told me, you promised, you better keep your word as a man. Why did you tell me that? And I said, they laugh at me, Ma. She said, who? Say everybody. Aunt Esther, Eddie, Charles, everybody. Why? They said, because it don't sound like a bass. And she didn't say nothing else. That next Saturday, we ended up going to Oakland Mall, Grinnell's Music, and we were in there. And so she she was playing the piano, like she was playing the piano. And she said, which one of them basses is better? And I picked up this Univox. And I said, mm-hmm. oh, this one it, man. It's $180. Because at that point, you could tell how much your base, about how much it costs. $180 from $25 is a nice, you got a good base. Mm-hmm. So I was sitting there, man, and I was playing it. And then she said, okay, wrap that up. I'm going to take it for him. And the salesman became the salesman. He said, ma'am, this boy got talent. If you want him to be the best, you got to get him the best. And I'm telling the dude, man, shut up. My mother's on a freaking <laughs> Just pack this thing up and get the heck out of here. He said, let me show you what it is. This boy's got talent. He rolled, he pulled this fender out of the front, the same one that AWB had, the same blonde fender precision. And did what we you know about Alan Gorey? Man, that's my dude. <laughs> that's my dude. You're my uh, man. So, oh, God. Okay. Yeah, average white so I'm sitting there. I'm in there and I'm asking her, can we play? I say, we're going to get this one, but can I just leave playing? I mean, we went through this ritual. We said, take off your coat, almost like Moses. Take off thy shoes from on that feet. Take off thy coat from <laughs> off thy back. And we packed it up and he made sure he put a towel on me and he put the bass down and I plugged it into that amp that the Univox had. He said, oh, no, 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 no. You got to do this right. And he pushed this big red custom eight foot amp off of it mm-hmm. and what? he turned it up. And the first thing I did was, and it was School so smooth. Crush, yeah. okay. It was yeah. so smooth. And all of a sudden, I'm playing everything. I said, I may not get a chance to play this no more. So I played Skin Tight. I played I'll Take You There. <laughs> I played Fire. I played everything I could possibly play. <laughs> Next thing you know, there was a crowd in front of Grinnell's brother saying, look at that boy. Look at that boy in there playing that bass like that. And my mother looked at it. And she said, they said, we can do a payment plan of $30 a month. 
he deserves this. He'll be good. And she put her head down just like this because she didn't have that kind of money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she said, wrap it up. I bet not see this under the bed. <laughs> I said, I promise you, you'll never see it under the bed. Now that base retired my mother. Wow. It let her retire. Love it. All wow. of this stuff you see here, all of this, every time you see me on Soul Train, every time you see me anywhere, it was because she took a chance on a $430 Fender base mm. when she didn't have the money. She probably ended up paying uh, $1,800. Right. On some rent to own shit. She bought a car. <laughs> but it, 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 it paid for everything that you see me about. She invested in me. She invested in me, and that was what it was. And I played that thing in the ground. Being young, I didn't know anything about I couldn't afford to take it to go and get it calibrated. So I just changed the strings. And you know how we, we had to boil the strings to get that pop back. You know what I mean? <laughs> you did the what? Boil them. You were put, wait, 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 explain that process to me. So here's the thing. I, I ended up, I could buy like, I could save up enough money to buy strings uh, maybe once every five to six months. So I bought these Dear Daria lights. So, you know, they get all cruddy and stuff. They start sounding dull. Well, we learned that if you take them off the base, ground them up, put them in hot boiling water for about seven to 10 minutes, you pull them back off and they fresh. You get that same bank right back again. So we were boiling strings. We were never (laughs) buying that. That's hood stuff. (laughs) What? That's hood stuff. Hey, Fred, did you play that on Victory? I played enough. By that time, I I was able to buy another bass. Okay. Another Fender. Because that bass got me fired. Uh, That that one literally, (laughs) after the Thomas Whitfield session, he said, man, you're a good player, but you got to keep up with your acts. And you just got to, I got to have somebody to play. And at that point, Leonard Kern had this Gibson and it was, it was solid. So I lost the gig, but he let me play at least those two songs. And, um, you know what it was? It was an Ibanez. I went and bought an Ibanez. Yeah. Okay. And that's the one that's on Victory. That's the one on Victory, yep. Do you still have that original bass just for prosperity's sake? or I, I couldn't find it, but I went and bought one just like <laughs> Just to remind me, I went and bought one just like Now, it's crazy. I don't play much no more because of my arthritis and I'm just older. And so I, I got a lot of young cats to play with me. Now, I ended up getting my own bass line through bass mod. Oh, oh, wow. Dope. Got my own signature and everything on it. And and so I got about five of them and I'm like, man, you wait till I I can't play to give me this. (laughs) (laughs) Damn, and your mother didn't get to see that, did she, Fred? Never got a chance. Damn, that would have been dope. But, But, you know, she's watching in spirit. We know. Yeah, she know, she know. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. 
I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Can you please tell me as, as much as you feel comfortable with revealing what's under the hood? I want to know what is it to tour on the gospel circuit? First of all, to get to get the pole position of being the go-to guy to play these gigs. But then let's say I'm growing up with you in Detroit and I play drums and you play bass. You mentioned the wines, but I mean, I'm certain that you've done other gigs beforehand. Like when do you start, when do they, when do they really start taking you serious as in Fred's my go-to like at what year are you the man? You know, it never happened like that for me because I went straight from the winers straight to commission. And with commission, I dedicated every waking moment. Um, I dedicated every waking moment to making sure that group did what we needed to do. I will tell you this story that I got fired off of a commission off of a Tremaine Hawkins tour. That was my first tour that I was the go to guy. What year? And, what year? Uh, man, I'm trying to think it was it was probably. I was out of school, so I, it could have been like it was coming out of the whining. So it's probably 83. We're right, her first real solo album. Whatever the, you look at me, Crisis at Me Free album. That first album. I got fired off that gig, and uh, it was funny because Michael Wright was, a, was one of my best friends. Michael Williams is one of my best friends. He, Michael Williams is a drummer, he's a drummer for Commission. And Michael Wright was the guitar player. He was supposed to be the seventh member of, of commission. And they, Jeffrey LaValle uh, was uh. putting together a group uh, to go out and play for Tremaine. So me and Michael, bass player, lead, and then drummer. And everything was fine. And we were rehearsed. We were shared in the basement. And I always sang the middle. And Mike sang the top. And that's just the way it was. The night we got to Jeff to come in and do uh, the audition. Like, let's, let's start practicing. My mic froze and he started singing the middle. Now in my head, I couldn't make that transition bass wise and singing. So I had to shed. And once I learned my part, I'm good, but it's not like, Oh, let me switch to this part. Or let me sing this part. It was like, this is my part. I can rock this and I can sing this part. Solid. Well, he sang my part and, and he froze. And I never forget, I said to him, we stopped. I said, yo, Mike, I sing the middle. And he looked right back at me and said, no, I sing the middle. And I, I'm like, 
oh, we got a situation here. And Jeff mm-hmm. LaValle was looking like this. <laughs> somebody, sing somebody sing something. And so I said, well, let me salvage this situation because he's my boy. I'll try to sing this top. I'll just learn it. And as I was doing it, I was struggling. And so Jeff said, you know what? Let's just come back tomorrow. Well, when I came back the next day, they had somebody sitting in the car. And the manager oh. came and said, we have a problem. And we, we seem to be a problem. What's the problem? And they said, well, I said, well, we kind of learned kind of the same part. And they said, go get Jonathan right quick. And coming down the steps, Jonathan Dubose comes Ooh. walking down the steps. He comes right. walking down the steps. And Mike Wright, who's a guitar player, said, oh, man, I'm fired. And he literally, <laughs> he literally started packing up his guitar. And they said, no, 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 no. Hmm? no. They said, Fred, can you use your bass? And wow. they all they rehearsed right in front of me. And they said, Fred, I'm sorry. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to use you on this time. And they couldn't just take three hours so you could relearn your harmony parts or whatever? They, they told me to go home and learn it. And they gave me a night. And I went home and I learned it. And when I went back, Gloria Hawkins was there. Jeff LaValle was there. And, the, and Jonathan was standing there. They were just there. And um, I can't imagine if Jonathan came in yet, but I know it was that. And the pressure hit me so hard. And I started playing and I was singing a note that I could not sing. And I just remember stopping and put my head down. And I wasn't going to rap on my boy. This is kind of the first time I saw it was his fault. I don't care now. (laughs) (laughs) I sat through the whole rehearsal while Jonathan Dubose practiced on my bass. Oh, wow. And I tell everybody, one of the reasons why probably I am decently successful is because I never carried bitterness towards anyone. Isn't Detroit a little bit too small for like, you're seeing these people every day. Like we were still boys. Okay. still boys. We never, you know, you don't rat your boy out. And that's just what it was. And it was unspoken at that time that that's what the problem was. And I never, I never ratted him out. And I just, it was crazy too, because they toured for about a year to two years. And I was broke. I was broke. (laughs) See, James, we would have ratted each other out, man. No. (laughs) My best friend was Michael Williams as well, the drummer for Commission. And he has no filter. So he would come back, just tell it, yeah, we just came from Amsterdam, man. Man, let me tell you something, man. Just that I just bought this, I bought that, and we did this. And I just <laughs> I sat there and I just I just took it, you know. So what what did you wind up doing? Like, did you take that as like, okay, I gotta shed even harder? Oh yeah. Like I've I, I said I'm never I'm never gonna let that happen to me again. But what I did was I, I focused deep on getting commissioned together because. We had to learn managers. We had to try to find managers. We didn't have the easy road, man. People thought the commission was signed and somebody saw us. Man, we spent, we raised $13,000 from aunts, uncles, cousins, skating parties, receptions. We would put them in a shoebox under my bed and go buy studio time. And finally, we had a finished product. And we leased that first record that I'm going on. It was a lease. I'm going on record. Yep. Our okay. manager, we, we went to Ty Scott Records and Leonard Scott said, I'll sign you guys. We didn't know what to ask for. We said, can we just have the money back to pay our parents and our, our family back? And he said, sure. But then Derek Dirksen, who was the leader of Chapter 8, 
you know, he was the drummer mm-hmm. and the leader of Chapter uh-huh. 8. He said, let me manage you guys. He just walked away from the wine. He said, let me manage you. And um, uh, we said, okay. He said, give me two weeks. I'm going to take it to Light Records. And if they don't come back within two weeks, we'll go over to Ty Scott. Well, he called on his relationships. He did a lease deal. We put the record out and the rest is history. Then, then we got signed the second record on from second record on. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about the business of that. Um, so how did that work in terms of like, do you guys own those masters now? Was it a deal that they own? How was business done in the gospel world as uh, compared to the kind of secular music? It was done the same. Same thing. Artists got jacked. <laughs> I believe hey. we own the masters now, though. We do gotcha. own the masters now after the first five records. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, other than in, that, we just got it, took. Man. So in your mind, and you're saying that the Winans was like your first gig before you went with, with or your biggest gig before you went to forming commission. In your mind, is the Winans and doing that circuit as good as it gets, like as top as it gets? Is there any point where you're like, hey, maybe I should go to Los Angeles to become a session musician or... Are there any secular acts like is is Anita Baker in the chapter? You know, like are you are your eyes looking elsewhere, or for for you, it's like I'm gonna stay in the gospel world, and the Winans is as good as it gets to get out there. I never looked to do a secular group or play in a club or anything else. I really felt like I was called, and this was before I knew my birth issues or anything. I honestly felt like I was called to gospel music. So the Winans was as big as it got. It's like, man, I thought I'd be paying for them right now. At 60 years old, (laughs) I never thought I was going to leave. And I didn't want to leave when I left. You know, honestly, there was a little haiku uh, that happened in commission. Here, I'm going to give you all some real, little something behind the scenes. A couple members called me with our managers at that time into a basement at 12 o'clock at night. And they told me, if you don't leave the winings, we're going to take this group from you. You out here traveling, you out here doing that, you can't be no group leader. They didn't have a record deal. They didn't have anything. But there was some scuttlebutt that was going on between two members and the management. And they were literally trying to take the group from me. And I said, they said, if you don't leave them, we're going to take this group from you. So I had to go back to the winings and I couldn't be no rat, so I couldn't tell them, man, they're making me do this. Mm-hmm. I had to tell them, and man, after Chicago, that's my last that's my last gig. I'm going to make commission. And they were so mad at me. Really? Man. They were so mad. They understood. They, they told like, you, no, 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 no. That's what they said. <laughs> but it was because we were family. And... Right. Um, the last gig we did was with Milton Brunson, the Mighty Clouds of Joy, Al Green, and a bunch of people in Chicago. And i never forget, I cried like a baby. And in the van, they, they, they got together as brothers. And they sang this song, uh, To Finders Keepers. And I just remember the hook. They said, farewell, friend. We love having you. Uh, what up, y'all? Fontigolo here. That was part one of our two-part interview with the legendary Fred Hammond. Y'all stay tuned. Part two is coming up next week. 
and it gets even better right here on QLS, Quest Love Supreme. Yep. Quest Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus